entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, uh, like a lot of other passages in the Bible, is recorded more than one place. Some of the stories are recorded only in one gospel. Some of the stories are recorded in multiple gospels. Sometimes, like this occasion, a story is recorded in two different gospels. And it's inevitable that if a story is recorded in two different gospels, you have a different window into the reality called the story. And that window often varies in the telling of the story. The telling of this story, Matthew has the account in what you might call the first person. He's got the centurion speaking directly to Jesus. If you take a look at the story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, you'll notice that Luke's Gospel has him speaking through those who are under his authority, speaking on his behalf. Some would look at that and see a contradiction. I don't. I don't see a contradiction because if you know anything about first century literature or any kind of literature for that matter, you realize that on routine occasions, people speak as though the individual who initiated the speak speech through a person is speaking in the first person because they have the authority to speak on behalf of that person as though the person was standing right with them. I say that to uh, make a, a point at the very beginning of this whole thing. I know that there's some of you who, if you have not already faced it at the university, will eventually face this. You will go to a class that is a class on New Testament or some other biblical literature class. And what you may find is a professor who basically thinks that what you have in front of you on Sunday morning is an interesting spiritual description of a reality that first of all cannot be seen and second of all cannot be verified. In other words, many professors, especially in the religion department at IU, would suggest that these stories are non-historical. Either they are not history at all or that one story contradicts the other. 
Uh, let me say up front something. If you wish to believe in God, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that God exists. If you wish not to believe in God, there's what you might call evidence for doubt. And so you make a choice. When you approach a subject matter like this, for those of you who are about to, you have the same choice on your hands. There are ways of interpreting the text and looking at it historically that could, if you choose, lead you to not consider these documents to be historical. But let me assure you, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that they are historical and fully reliable. You make a choice. But don't make your choice ill-informed. Let me put it another way. Bart Ehrman is not the final word. Most of you don't know who Bart is, but if you take a New Testament class at IU, you will encounter him. As a matter of fact, I think Bart Ehrman is a description of not-so-good scholarship. I say that because I want you to be prepared that there are realities that you call scholarly realities that will undermine your faith. And you have a choice to make. I don't usually talk about this too much and don't have the opportunity uh, to teach about it. But let me just give you a testimony. Just for a minute. I was raised in the context of a religious community that was thoroughly committed to the Scripture and believed it to be Word of God and the historical record of Word of God. Along the way, when I decided to go to seminary, never intending to go into the ministry at all, by the way, just to do philosophy of religion, I landed at Yale University, the divinity school there, and encountered a serious, serious amount of doubt concerning the reliability of the text. As a matter of fact, most professors I had in New Testament would have agreed in some measure with the professors that you have at IU concerning the reliability of the text, the documents themselves. I listened carefully. I did my work. I wrote my papers. And I came away more thoroughly convinced than ever that the scriptures that were delivered to the church were reliable documents of the things they spoke of. Whatever it is that you are about to experience, there are plenty of people like me who've experienced exactly the same thing and walked away holding on firmly to their confidence in the reliability of the Scripture. It can happen. It's a choice you make. And there's good reason to believe it. I want to say one more thing. I consider this to be the historically reliable Word of God. But that's not where I stop. Because if I did, it would be academic alone. I consider it to be more than that. I consider it to be very Word of God. The authoritative declaration from God to humanity concerning God's self and God's world, including ourselves. I think it's authoritative and I think it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just so you know. And just so you know, 
there's really good reason to believe that. So don't give it up too quickly. Over the last 18 years, I can't remember how many people I've talked to about this issue in my office or on campus. I just want to say my door's open. That's what I do. If you're struggling, please come talk to me. Come talk to other members of staff. I'll just say one more thing, and this is a promo for ECC. My friends, there is no other church in town where the pastoral staff can do this kind of job in addressing these critical issues. None. If you got the issue, come talk to us. We do it. Now, about the text. (laughs) This story, it's a wonderful story, and I'll borrow from Luke and from Matthew to tell the story. And here we go. This encounter with Jesus is an encounter with Jesus of a centurion, either first person or through another. The centurion is probably a soldier in the Roman army who may be an officer over a hundred men. We don't know exactly. We also know that this Roman centurion is very likely a Gentile, which means he's outside the circle of faith. As a matter of fact, he's so far outside the circle of faith, he couldn't have entered into the temple area proper. He'd have to stay outside the wall of the Gentiles. This man, who's a centurion, outside the circle of faith, hears about Jesus and is fascinated by him. It's likely that he's what is often called a God-fearer among first century Jewish people. That is, a person who fears God, who loves God, and who's listening to the words concerning Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and is following, but he doesn't quite know what the next step is. When Jesus begins to teach and to walk along Palestine, this man inevitably hears about him. He's also a man of great means. As a matter of fact, um, he's well known among the Jewish people. And this man, outside the faith, so to speak, but knowledgeable of Jesus, encounters a problem. The problem is his favorite servant is sick and dying. And he knows that he cannot heal him. He knows that the medicines have never healed this disease. And so out of desperation, he comes to Jesus. And he basically says, Jesus, will you heal him? It's a very simple request. And he has a very simple kind of faith. Jesus says to the people who are there, elders representing him and to those who are standing there, why should I heal this guy? Isn't that funny? You don't expect that from Jesus' mouth, right? You see Jesus as the healer, the one who loves everyone, the one who heals everyone. But Jesus says, tell me, why should I heal this one? I think it's an implication that Jesus made decisions about who he was going to heal and who he wasn't. Some people disagree. They think that no matter where Jesus went, he healed everyone. I think that unlikely. Because the power of God, through Jesus Christ, is still present among the church. And God does not always heal. But on this occasion, Jesus seems to indicate, I'm about to make a choice. Why should I heal this guy? And they say, well, there's a really good reason to heal him. Because he's filthy rich. No, that's not what they say. They say, the reason to heal him is because he loves this nation. Or 
Read between the lines. This man is exceedingly wealthy. He's got a lot of influence. And with his wealth and his influence, he built us our synagogue. Is that enough, Jesus? Can you heal him for that reason? Jesus doesn't respond. Well, because he's such a great person, because he loves the Jewish nation, because he doesn't respond that way. He just says, okay, I'll heal him. Okay, let's do this thing. Let's go to his house. I think it's as important to note what Jesus doesn't say. He does say, why should I heal him? He does say, let's do this. But he doesn't say to the centurion or anybody listening, why'd you wait so long? The guy's dying. If you really had faith in me, if you really believed in me, wouldn't you have asked before now? He didn't say that. He also didn't say to the centurion directly or through his ambassador. He didn't say to the centurion, why should I heal you? You serve the Roman Empire. And you, vicariously, are an oppressor of my people. You keep us under the heavy boot of Rome. Why should I heal your servant? He didn't say that. He also didn't say to the centurion, hmm, let me think about that one. <laughs> when I was a kid growing up, I, the words I hated to hear the most from my parents, I don't know. Do you remember that? The words my parents always used when I would ask, well, we'll think about it. I mean, to me, that was just a straight out no. I don't know the statistics. Maybe sometimes when they thought about it, they say yes. But they were buying time. They were trying to figure out a way to give me a reason why I couldn't have what I wanted, right? Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, mm, let me think about it. <laughs> he just said, yes, let's do this. Let's go and heal him. Now, the response of the centurion, you know that one, right? The response of the centurion is, wait, 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 not so fast. I know I requested that you heal him, but let's not go overboard. You, you don't need to come to my house. There's all kinds of storylines behind that one, right? Maybe the centurion is thinking to himself, you're too holy for me. I want to request and I want you to perform a miracle on my behalf, but man, don't get too close because I might get burned. <laughs> you're, you're, you're holy and righteous. Or maybe the centurion was just saying, you know what? You are so far above me. I'm not dignified enough to be in your presence. I want to acknowledge that so you don't need to come. Or maybe the centurion was saying, look, we know the rules, Jesus. You're not supposed to come to Gentiles' houses. And I'm not supposed to associate with holy men from Israel. So just say the word. We don't know the reason except that we know that when this man, the centurion, said, just say the word, Jesus was struck by it. Why? Because the motivation from the centurion, at least as to his words, was this. Don't come because you don't need to come. Don't be, come because I understand authority and you have authority over everything. I have authority over men, and there's people who have authority over me. And in that scenario, anybody who's an authority says, do this, and we do it. Do that, and they do it. All you have to do, Jesus, is say the word. You've got that kind of authority. Don't come to my house. 
Jesus is amazed. He says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I've been walking around Israel doing miracles. I've been preaching the kingdom of heaven. And I haven't seen this kind of remarkable faith. And what is this remarkable faith? It's simple faith. Terribly simple faith. And what are the elements of that simple faith? The number one element of that simple faith is this. Acknowledging authority. See, the centurion wasn't just saying, come do it, please, I know you can do it. The centurion was saying, remember the statement about authority? You're the authority over all pain and suffering and death. You have the authority to speak, just to speak at a distance, without medicine, without touch. You have the authority to speak and rebuke a disease and to heal. You've got that kind of authority. I acknowledge that, Jesus. That's why I say, no need to come to my house. The second element of simple faith on behalf of the centurion is a recognition of his unworthiness. It's not just, don't bother yourself because I know you have this vicarious authority that extends time and space. It's, don't come to my house because, look, I'm not worthy of that. It's a a statement of humility. There's no sense of entitlement here, is there? Can can I just pause? Isn't there sometimes a sense of entitlement with us when we ask Jesus? Maybe a sense of demanding. Maybe a sense of, I deserve this. There doesn't seem to be any of that with the centurion. No sense of entitlement. And you get the feeling, though we don't know, you get the feeling that if he'd have said to Jesus, please, will you heal my servant? And Jesus had said, no, it's not the will of God to do so. We don't get the sense he would have been angry. Disappointed? I don't think angry. He doesn't carry with him a sense of entitlement. He understands he's not worthy. So the first element of this simple faith is an acknowledgement of authority. And the second is recognition of his unworthiness. The third is complete confidence in Jesus. Jesus, if you say it, it'll happen. If you speak the word, there's a period at the end of the sentence. It's done. I believe you. You know, that's not the same thing as having confidence in your own faith. It's also not the same thing as saying, I'm confident God will grant me my request unconditionally. It's just confidence in the person of Jesus that Jesus has the ability to do anything. Period. Because he's the Lord of the universe. And so we ask, and we have that kind of confidence, and we wait. There's a fourth element to this simple faith. It's his willingness to take the next step. 
right? It took initiative. He had to say at some point, I'm going to go see Jesus. And I'm going to put myself out there. And I'm going to step into his presence, either in person or vicariously. And I'm going to say, Jesus, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm desperate and I've got no hope. And you're my only hope. Will you please? And I'm going to take that as the next step of faith. You know, the next step of faith sometimes is just asking. Having the nerve to ask. Because you know Jesus can do it. But he took the next step. He had that willingness. What I'm reminded of with these four simple elements of a simple faith is that that's all Jesus ever requires of us. Wherever we are, he meets us. And that's all he requires. You know, that kind of faith is not easy. But it's simple. Now you say you're contradicting yourself. No, it's a nuance. Hang with me. It's not easy because it takes courage. It's not easy because you've got to believe in spite of the reality that's in front of you. It's not easy. You know it's not easy to take the next step of faith. But it's simple. I've never skydived. Okay? I'd like to sometime, but I think my son and I are going to have to come up with some sort of conspiracy so our wives don't know. We'll do it. We're just going to jump out of an airplane and then we'll come back and tell them it happened. But I've heard stories about skydiving and people prepare for it. I mean, the preparation is not necessarily easy. You got to go through it. It takes time. You go through the jumps. You figure out how it's going to come out. You know how to pull the cord. You get all trained on it. And then the day comes. And you're up there in the plane. And there's the ground, if you can see it. And you're right on the edge of the airplane. And you say to yourself, I can't do this. Your knees are shaking. Why? Because it's not easy. You've gone through the whole routine, but you're still worried you might crash. It's not easy, but it's simple. It really is. Jump. You don't have to jump high. (laughs) You don't have to jump long. You have to grit your teeth when you jump. You don't have to look good when you jump. You just step out of the plane. It's simple, but it's not easy. Following the first service, Brian Horn, the music director, came up to me. He said, Bob, I want you to know that I'm a giver. And he said, um, I'm willing, if you ever get to the point that you want to jump out of the plane, I'll push you. So, <laughs> like, thanks. thanks, Brian. <laughs> but, but isn't that the way faith is? It's not easy, but it's simple. You just believe, or you don't. And God says, I'm calling you that. You don't need to understand everything about me. You never could. You don't need to understand everything about Jesus. You could possibly. You don't have to have perfect faith either. No, perfect faith is not necessary. It's faith in the one who is perfect that's necessary. 
There's a big difference there. You can have faith like a mustard seed, Jesus says. Tiny little itty-bitty, almost invisible seed. That's all it takes. Or you can have the faith like that guy who came to Jesus somewhere to the centurion and had a need and he wanted Jesus to help him and Jesus said, okay, I will. Do you believe? I mean, I can imagine, I wasn't there. I can imagine the guy goes, I didn't expect that. He responds to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, Lord, I'm right here. Please kick me out the door. That's the kind of faith, it's a simple faith that Jesus requires of you. And here's the thing. That simple faith is always required of you. See, faith is not a static reality. We don't do it one time and get over it and then move on. Faith is something we do over and over and over again, like exercising a muscle. And you're called upon time and time again to have faith. And Jesus calls you to that kind of faith. What kind of faith um, is required? A simple faith. What kind of faith is Jesus asking of you right now? What's the next step? You know, maybe the next step is to accept Jesus. I mean, maybe you've been following along and, you, and you've been watching this Jesus narrative. <laughs> And you've been loving every minute of it. This Jesus is amazing. Matter of fact, I think maybe this Jesus is God. This Jesus is incredible. And I'm following this Jesus because I think this Jesus is the way things ought to be. But Jesus won't let you stay there, you see. Jesus is going to ask you to take another step eventually. I don't know when that time's going to come. But the other step that Jesus is going to ask you to take is he's going to say, you think I'm amazing. You're right. You think I'm son of God. You've got it. But what you need to do is to take this step of faith. You need to call me Lord. You need to say, you are my Lord. That is not easy to say. Life pushes against that. Your family might be pushing against that. Your history might be pushing against that. Your doubt might be pushing against that. It's not easy to say, but that faith is simple. Just say yes and mean it. Of course, that might not be your position at this point in your life. You may have said yes to Jesus as Lord. What's the next step that Jesus is calling you to? Is he calling you to take the next step in baptism? To declare your faith publicly? We got a candidate this morning following the sermon who's going to declare their faith in baptism. She's taking the next step. What is Jesus calling you to in the next step? Maybe you've been in this thing called the Christian faith for 40 years. Anybody been following Christ for 40 years, best you can remember? Is there any, not too many. Yeah, there you go. I knew there'd be some people in here. Most of you have gray hair. Who raised your hand like that? You've been around. I, I identified a woman in the first service. Uh, I said, I'm sure there's somebody here who's been following Christ for at least 40 years, Ruth Brooks. Ruth's like 97. <laughs> 
You may imagine how many steps of faith that devoted follower of Christ has taken. And she's 97. And I guarantee you next week, God's going to say it again. Ruth, it's time to take another step. What's the step that God is calling you to? It's inevitable he will. I love the song that the band sang. Um, it's really a song. It's a song about Peter. It's a song about Peter stepping out in faith. And, and the, the name of the song is Oceans. And the words go like this. You remember them. You call me out upon the waters. See Peter stepping out of the boat. The great unknown where feet may fail. Faith is not easy, but it's simple. You just do it or you don't. And there I find you in the mystery. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. Now, is that counterintuitive or not? In oceans deep, I'm going to stand? That's what Peter did. And I'll call upon your name. And I'll keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. Why? Because I am yours and you are mine. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail, And fear surrounds me. You've never failed. And you won't start now. So, I'll call upon your name. And I'll keep my eyes above the waves. And when oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. For I am yours. And you are mine. Have you claimed Christ as yours? As your Lord? If you haven't, make it today. That's the next step. If you claim Christ is yours, there's yet another step. I don't know what it is, but you do. Take the next step. Say yes and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you've been gracious to us. Um, We often say it. We're just so blessed that we have the word of Scripture. The scripture that uh, allows us to know what you're like through the person of Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what it would be like without it, Lord. How would we really know the grace of God? How would we really know the humility of God? How would we really know the love of God? We, we couldn't possibly know it the way we know it. Not in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful revelation. And you show it to us over and over again in the stories of Scripture, and then you repeat it incarnationally. You you come into our world, and you encounter us where we are, just like the people in the stories. And you say, follow me. It's not easy, but it's simple. Just follow. So, Lord, wherever we are um, this morning, no matter what our journey, there's another step. Help those who have called upon your name to keep their eyes above the waves.
and to take the next step and experience your faithfulness. And for that, we'll praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We please stand so we can respond to you.